I mean, at the end of the day, bollocks to it because whales write what you could call symphonies if you wanted to all the time. They just don't write them down. They just sing. They're in the choirs all the time. They communicate. They, they, maybe they think that we can't do it and that we're really stupid and that we should stop putting those microphones in the ocean because it's really putting them off. They're singing, you know? <laughs> yeah, it got weird, but it was really, really good. Today we're going to be talking to Francis Brewer. Jonah and I are going to listen to Francis as he tells us about how he became a vegan, how philosophy helped him kind of get there. We're going to talk aliens, we're going to talk Socrates, speciesism, whether plants are sentient. Jonah's going to have an existential crisis and yeah, I hope you enjoy guys. I should also explain that I keep calling this man Harley, that is because it is his first name. Uh, but professionally, Harley goes by the name Francis, which is his middle name. Where I wanted to start, Harley, was I wanted you um, to tell us who you are and how you got into philosophy. Um, yeah, so basically, I, um, I was interested in economics at school. I really loved economics and I wanted to go to university to do economics, but... Um, Luckily for me, one of my teachers told me that I would have to study a hell of a lot of maths and I was doing, so it seemed like a poor choice. But um, he told me to try philosophy, politics and economics because then I could get the economics, but I could avoid the maths elements of it. I could just focus on economic theory. Um, yeah, and so that lasted for maybe the first couple of semesters of university. And then um, I basically thought, well, philosophy is the one. Um, the, 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 it, economics was very limited. There was only so many questions that you could ask. And the questions that I was interested in, it was, um, I, was I could have been told, oh, no, you don't do that at this level. That's, that comes later. Or, or we don't deal with that in this class, that kind of thing. Whereas in philosophy, it was always treated as, oh, that's quite interesting. Where can we go with that? Um, and it felt it didn't have the limits of the of politics or economics. So I thought I'll switch to philosophy. And that's how I... Um, got onto philosophy. Nice. Where did you study? Uh, Sterling. So that's how you got into philosophy. Um, and what are you doing at the moment? Um, I'm working as a tutor and I'm um, occasional journalist. What do you mean by occasional journalist? Um, as in I'm a freelance journalist and it's much harder than expected to actually get published. Uh, <laughs> so my, my publishing rate is, uh, I don't know if you can even describe it as a trickle, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's happening but it's not happening very often <laughs> <laughs> nice okay so you're you're studying and you're doing uh occasional journalism do you have any plans to like keep going with philosophy at all um yes i'd like to go back to university um i'm doing um a creative writing um and english masters at the open university and then after that i intend to go back and do a phd in philosophy nice Okay, so you have a story for us, and um, I think, of all places, we should start with your mother. Yeah, great place to start, that's where it all starts. Um, <laughs> right, um, yeah, so I think, I, I don't know what my exact age was now, was about 12 or 13 or something, but mum started getting into healthy eating, and um, she started cutting down animal products. And um, eventually, you know, this was, it was, this, me and my dad weren't involved in this at all. Um, and I don't have any siblings, so it was just three of us. Um, but yeah, at one point she just stopped. She stopped eating anything that came from an animal. Um, and for quite a few years, she would make me and my dad a dinner for ourselves and she'd make her own dinner, right? So she'd make us a meat or a dairy and she would make herself, or a fish and she'd make herself a vegan meal. Um, and yeah, I thought she was insane. I thought she was absolutely crazy. I thought this was like completely beyond the pale. Um, yeah, and relentlessly, just, you know, I'm sure if anybody that's listened is um, a vegan, you'll have the thing happen to you. Um, oh, don't you miss this? Oh, it's so tasty. Mmm, like exaggerated enjoyment of meats, that kind of thing. We're doing it all. Um, and yeah, mum had done it for health reasons, right? And um, I remember my mum showed me some book and to me it looked like a bit of a quackery book. I thought, this is, you know, this isn't a real doctor. This is like, doesn't make any sense. Um, and I asked, I asked one of my science teachers. Um, and I asked, you know, is it, is it, could, could you be healthy without eating animal products? And he was like, no, that's insane. How could you do that? You know, you, I forget the exact thing, but you know, I'm going to caricature me by saying, you're missing out on your protein. You're not getting your omega-3s. Like, 
you know, the classics. Um, um, yeah, and so I just thought my mum was crazy. Um, I thought, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think anything of it all, really. And I just thought, oh, this is one of my mum's quirks now that she's uh, done this. And then it's, it started, my feeling about it started changing a bit when I got to university because, um, so I moved into halls and in, um, in Stirling, it's like these old 70s breeze block, grey buildings. And mm. um, they were really, we were really crammed in. And so it was like there was 16 of us sharing one kitchen and it was quite, it was quite a small kitchen. Oh, that's nightmare. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I made a lot of good friends. I made a lot of good friends. So there was that. But yeah, it was very smelly, always dirty. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been demolished now, the building, uh, for better or worse. But um, yeah, and there was, a, there was a girl there and I was quite good friends with her. Um, and one day she just started putting pictures of like um, dead animals or like abused animals, you know, f- abused farm animals, like pictures of uh, battery hens or... Um, I think I think the one that sticks in my mind that I can actually see the picture still is like a piglet on a plate, just like with blood coming out all out of it, um, and that, that that stuck. It was like a horrific image, right? Oh my god! And as you can imagine, there was only one. She was a vegetarian. There was only one vegetarian in the whole flat, um, so you can imagine it didn't cause a good reaction, right? Um, it's actually quite a bad reaction, and. Um, but for some reason it stuck with me and I thought, I thought it was kind of funny. I thought it was funny that someone would do this because it was causing all this uproar. And I thought, wow, that's quite, what, what a funny, yeah, I, thought, I just thought it was a bit of comedy bit. I don't know why. Um, but like, yeah, luckily or, or unluckily for my meat eating, um, we were also studying in philosophy at the time when this was happening. We started to talk a little bits about consequentialism. Brief aside, consequentialism is a theory about what makes actions good or bad. And what consequentialists would say is that an action is good or bad depending on what outcome the action has. If you cause harm, it was a bad action. If you benefit someone, it was a good action. It doesn't matter whether you intended an action to be harmful or helpful. What matters is is whether it was, whether the action was harmful or helpful. It's a very, very simple theory, but it runs into lots of problems and it's really interesting and that's why you get taught it in philosophy all over the place, all the time. Also, there's a lot of different denominations or kind of brands of consequentialism. One of the most famous consequentialists is Peter Singer, and we're gonna talk about Peter Singer quite a lot. I don't know what brand of consequentialist he is at the moment. He's written many, many papers that get argued about a lot, and you should read them. And I think, I can't remember the Peter Singer paper, but we started to read some kind of Peter Singer paper, which was, it wasn't the one where it talks about intelligence and levels of intelligence. It was one about a harm reduction argument. That um, right. if we, he was like, we don't need it to survive. And, you know, I knew that from my mum and, and this vegetarian girl, they both, my mum was, I mean, this, my mum had been vegetarian at this point for what, five or six years? So I knew, I knew it was possible now. Like I knew my science teacher was wrong to a certain extent because my mum hadn't died. She hadn't like had a protein deficiency. Nothing had gone wrong. She was actually seeming quite healthy. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so we read the piece thing and it was, you can live without it, but it's also causing harm. And I agreed with that. I thought, yeah, it's causing harm. You know, these animals are suffering. But I thought, yeah, but you're not getting everything you need. And, you know, there's a hierarchy. We're better than animals. Like, animals don't really feel like we do. And surely we've got a right to do this. Like, we've always done it. Like, that kind of thing. And I ended up having a, a long discussion with the girl in the, in, the, in the kitchen about it. And eventually she started to convince me, like it went on for like weeks, this like debate, you know, and I'd say, oh, well, I've got, I've got this. And she'd say, well, what about this? And I can't remember the exact nature of it, but by the end of it, I'd gone, well, yeah, there's something wrong with this. And then I think it was two or three weeks after that, I was like, that's it. I stopped eating meat. I stopped meat and fish. And so I went vegetarian. Yeah. So that's the, that's the beginning of this. That's the beginning of it. Yeah. <laughs> did you, um, did you find that you struggled at all to transition or, I mean, after you decide, made the decision, were you, were you ever tempted to go back or did you ever slip up or um, uh, pretty solid after that? Slipped up multiple times. Like, um, I, I didn't, I never bought it in at the house again. Apart from one time, uh, me and my friend once were incredibly, he was a vegetarian as well. And this was like a couple of years later. We we're both incredibly depressed. And uh, we had a thing that we called the meat week. Um, as like an excuse to eat meat to make us feel better. And it didn't make us feel better, but yeah. And that's, so that there was, apart from that time, and then the occasional McDonald's when I was drunk, I think it was, it was pretty much hundred percent, you know, maybe, I, yeah, one meal in a, one meal in a couple of hundred, like or once or twice a year sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you really went whole ham for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whole <laughs> ham. But <we're> 
right so how did you how did your yeah, mom think, feel like you coming back and going um, mother i'm a vegetarian now well what was literally what most i say was she's like i said that I'd, she's like i said that would happen i said and now now you're on the path i tell you you're gonna be <laughs> vegan you'll end, you'll end up vegan by the end of this and i was like oh you're instead um again you know because I was like, the, the, I didn't, I didn't read any, I hadn't heard any, because Peter Singer wasn't, or at least in the papers that we were reading then, he wasn't arguing for veganism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I saw it was, is that um, you have to kill the animal to eat the meat, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, and so that I have a responsibility for that because it's a necessary component. But at the time, um, I believed that um, you could get eggs, milk, um, what other products are you as a vegan? Um, I think you should take some eggs, eggs and milk, everything else is made from milk. Yeah, eggs that you could get eggs and milk without harming the animals. And that if farmers did harm animals in that process, then it wasn't my responsibility. And so I sort of had this, um, that's, that's something to be corrected in the industry, not by me. I think, I think that was the way I came at it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and did that eventually change? Yes, so... Um, the, the girl doing the pick posters was weirdly affected, like insanely affected. By the end of the year, I think it was four or five people in the kitchen 16 had gone vegetarian. Oh my God. Um, not all of them have stayed vegetarian, but quite a few of them have, and some of us have gone vegan, right? So it seems like it wasn't effective, but it was weirdly super effective doing that because she sort of forced us to confront it. But I really didn't like hearing the, um, the vegan bit. I was just, I was completely deaf ears to it. And it, and it wasn't a common thing. I, my mum was still the only person that I'd ever even heard of being vegan. Um, yeah, and I think the first time was, and I think this was, um, I think this was just when, because I did a master's degree afterwards at um, St. Andrews, and I think it was just at the start of that when the vegan thing started coming in, because we did Gary Francione then. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Gary Francione. No, I think we should probably talk about who Peter Singer is and who Gary Francione is at this point, just so everybody's up to speed. Okay, oh, so Peter Singer is a um, big consequentialist, utilitarian, um, thinks just to reduce as much suffering as possible. Um, that's the caricature of Peter Singer. Um, <laughs> famously, um, because of this harm reduction idea, has some, um, what, what some of us say, unsavory views on particular kinds of people that he doesn't believe have as full chance for enjoyment. Um, and so it's caused quite a bit of controversy for that. And he also argues for things like um, giving away money to charity. Yeah, to okay. reduce harm. Yeah, okay, so that's Peter Singer. And who's Gary Francione? Um, so Gary Francione is an animal rights person. So he's coming out from a deontological perspective. And um, he thinks that it's, veganism is what he calls a moral baseline. Um, and again, this has been many years since I've read this now, but um, yeah, I think his is that animals are sentient. And if something's sentient, then it has rights. And um, it has the right not to be killed. That's like a base right that any animal with sentience has. Um, and so he thinks that they have an equal right to that as human beings. Um, yeah, and he probably be described as something of a hardliner, especially within the vegan movement, because he doesn't, he doesn't believe that you should advocate for reductarianism, you know? So Peter Singer might say it's better to reduce than not do it at all. But because Gareth Francione sees it as a moral baseline, um, he thinks that campaigns like Meat Free Monday or um, what's the... Jonathan Saffron Fowler recently wrote a book called like We Are The Weather, where he's arguing that we should go vegan for breakfast and lunch. Uh, Gareth Francione thinks that those arguments are... He's not because he believes that they are just wrong, the wrong arguments to make. And he uses analogy between racism. He wouldn't say, let's not be racist on Mondays, right? <laughs> let's, let's only be racist in the evenings and not in the mornings, right? You, you, you wouldn't make arguments like that. And in fact, many people would find that probably rightly offensive to mm-hmm. make that argument. Um, it's almost an absolute thing. And uh, Gary Francione um, basically says that the reason why we think it's okay in the animal perspective is because we have this hierarchical view of animals and we don't have a reason to have that hierarchical view. That's what um, Peter Singer calls speciesism, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, speciesism. Mm-hmm. So you started reading Gary Francione. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, so I started reading Gary Francione, and also uh, there I met vegans. I started meeting more vegans, and it was, and it was becoming more of a thing. It still wasn't like, like it is today where it's like super popular, but it was, it was more of an idea that was there. It wasn't something I could just ignore anymore. It was, it was becoming more of a thing. Um, and it was something that the, the debates we were having, we actually had um, a video 
call with Gary Franciode about veganism. And it was, he didn't convince anyone in the class because he was very firebrand. Um, and he wasn't really interested in your beliefs. And, he, and he, he, he laughed at people's opinions and he, I mean, his arguments were good. I thought his arguments were good, but he was very dismissive of people that disagreed with him. Um, but, but it was like, but so I started to hear this rights perspective and um, I've been sort of vacillating at the time between, um, you know, consequentialist and deontological um, viewpoints. And so I was finding some elements of it convincing. I, mean, it's, um, I think the example that he used was, um, do you remember the woman who put the cat in the bin? Like, is, is this a, a thought experiment or is this a, a, this is a real <laughs> thing? It's like, um, it, was, it was, I don't know. I think, I think I'm older than I think I am sometimes, but um, this happened when I was in school and it was a woman, basically, there's a video of it on the internet you can find it. And it was the biggest, it was on front covers of the papers sort of thing. It lasted for like weeks, this, this scandal about the woman who put the cat in the bin. And um, a woman basically picks up a cat, puts it in a green wheelie bin, shuts the lid and walks off. Um, and it was caught on CCTV. Um, and she became known as the woman who put the cat in the bin. Oh my God. And it's obviously a horrific thing, bad things to do to an animal. And Gary Francione has a thing which he calls, um, I think he's changed the name of it now. Um, but it's like we have a, a, two, a moral, um, we have two moral sides of ourselves which don't mix together, right? I don't want to use the old name because he stopped using it now. But um, yes, yeah, so we have two different thoughts that we don't that don't mix. These two sides of ourselves uh, that don't make sense together. And one of them is it's wrong to put a cat in the bin, the, which you know which causes harm. But the cat was let out in a few hours. You know the cat the cat lived. It, it was probably not traumatized by that. I mean maybe it would have been, but it's it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to an animal. But it caused a national uproar. But that worse than that happens is is happening constantly every day in slaughterhouses. And mm -hmm. what I was to start finding out at that time as well was you can't get um, eggs and milk without harm. Um, so in, in, the, um, in the egg industry, uh, male chicks are ground alive um, on the first day that they're born. They get sex, they find out whether it's male or female, and because male ones um, can't be used for meat because they're not, they're not the, the right breed for that, they won't make enough money, they just put them in a grinder. Um, and they're alive, not, not sedated or anything, just get put to a grinder. And oh. it's a similar thing as well because, um, and I don't know if this is legal in the UK, but the other one is suffocation. So they just put them all into a big plastic bag and shut the plastic bag and that leave them. And so whenever you're buying eggs, it's like you're buying into that. And it's, it's just, there's a similar thing. I mean, obviously there's the conditions then, but um, most eggs that we buy go through that process and they've been selectively bred to produce eggs constantly, you know, daily eggs and it destroys the bones. And this is even when you get like backyard hens, they're not healthy hens. Um, it's depleting the bones of nutrients all the time because they're just having an unnaturally large amount of uh, eggs, like far more than they'd create, um, the wild version would create. Um, and then there's a similar thing is happening in the, um, in the milk industry. So again, um, male calves are not important to the dairy industry. They can't be raised for meat again because um, they're not the right breeds, they won't make enough money. So they usually get killed as well. So within a, within a week of being born. And um, the male, because the calves as well would take milk from the mother, um, they remove the cows from the mother very early, as soon as possible, because the longer it is, the longer it's drinking the milk that we will be drinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, and something I didn't know was that cows, and obviously once you think about it, it's obvious, but cows need to be pregnant to give milk. They need to have just had a baby. And so if you've got a dairy cow, they have to constantly be in this cycle. So they're in this constant cycle of being made pregnant, having the baby taken away, and then we take the milk. And then once that milk stops, they have to be re-impregnated and the cycle continues, right? And so a cow that's not going through this process can live about 20 years. In this process, they could live about four years. Wait, right? so the dairy cows that we know and are on our um, dairy packets, they only live four years? Yes, because of this process that we're going through. My God. And, and, this, and this is true of whether you're getting organic grass fed or whether you're getting it from a factory farm, right? The conditions might be better in a, in a family farm, but they're doing the same thing because if it's not having babies, it's not giving milk. Um, yeah, and then when, when the female calves are born, they just get put in a pen on their own because they can't be left with the mother because they'll take the milk. And so they get left on their own. And it's absolutely heart-wrenching uh, pictures of it where it's like each of them, there's like fields and fields uh, in, in the pictures. And it's just a cow, um, like a calf, in a little hut on the road. 
was just, and then they have like a little thing that they can drink, which has got like a milk solution in that doesn't have milk in, uh, but like, you know, some kind of gross solution. And it's just rows and rows and rows of this. And yeah, what this kind of conversation with Guy Francione brought to mind, and when I started learning about this at the same time was that what I thought only happened when you killed the animal was also happening in the uh, egg and dairy industries. And it was also um, unavoidable. It wasn't, it wasn't a side product of, oh, well, it's just bad management on the farms. This is, this is what the farms are. And yeah, it was, and it's not something that you know. When I found that out, it was super shock. It was super shocking. It was upsetting. Mm-hmm. And then it's not really matter to me with Gary arguments and Peter Singer's arguments because whichever one it was, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't work for me anymore. And once I'd made this kind of emotional connection with these animals like that, I just I couldn't do it. And it was, and I think it was easy to make that change once I'd already been vegetarian. Okay, you cut out a little bit there. So what were you saying about Peter Singer and Gary Francione? So to begin with, they were my sort of ins to thinking about this. But once I'd seen these things and once I'd started to uh, make an emotional connection with it. The argument sort of <clears throat> was, seemed unnecessary. It started me thinking about it, but it wasn't what made me think, well, I, I can't do this anymore at all. It was right. because okay. the emotional, once, I, once I'd like seen these, like, image, I mean, because I'd seen those girl, that girl's images, but I'd avoided looking at it. I'd avoided watching any films. I'd seen the ones on the fridge and that was it. But once I'd seen and heard about these farms, how they actually operate, it was an emotional feeling, way more than the philosophical. Um, the philosophy started it, but yeah, they did. They neither of them generated this like strong emotional reaction, which was this is sick, you know, and I have to do something about this now. And again, it wasn't perfect. Um, it took me three attempts to go vegan, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's been what three years now, and I'm fine. Yeah, three years since the last time something went bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> you um, you talk a bit about how twenty years ago or so. I mean, not not maybe not 20 years ago I mean even 10 years ago um even 10 years ago you hadn't really you know there weren't any vegans around particularly um and it's only in the past maybe five years or so in my own experience anyway that I've started coming across vegans um and it sounds like you've had the same experience too uh so do you do you feel like uh you know what what do you think has caused that change in society where that's a re- really, um, that population is growing at a, a really rapid speed now. Um, and, and do you think that's more of an emotional thing or do you think people have come across rational philosophical arguments and people like Peter Singer? Um, I think it's a convergence of three things. Um, so um, the first one obviously is the ethical side, right? But the ethical arguments have been made in the UK at least since um, Henry Sol, um, who Peter Singer loves to quote, and he's like um, he's like an, he's like a relatively unknown Victorian philosopher, and you know he's one of the ones you can only get on like an Amazon printed book that's like really badly spaced and it runs into the margin sort of thing. You know, you can't, yeah. There's not a Penguin Classics version of it, but so in the UK at least, this kind of idea goes back at least as far as that, and probably there's people that have uh, done it. But that doesn't explain why we've had this sort of shift at the moment. Um, but I think that it's, um, it's been that plus the um, health side, because the health side is becoming more common. And then finally, I think this might be the most important that's making it happen now rather than um, further off in the future is the environmental argument. Because the environmental argument to me seems to, um, while it's not necessarily more powerful surely purely in a, um, in a philosophical sense, it has a time constraint to it, which the others don't. You could say, well, oh, I know it's bad, but I can leave it with the ethical argument this is, you know. I know it's bad, but oh, I'll take some time and I'll do this. But then when you hear about how much damage it's doing environmentally, every day that you leave is, is lost time. Um, and I think the time element is doing it. And perhaps as well, the fact that there's more people being vegan and vegetarian it's becoming more common, it's more socially acceptable. I mean, when I first went vegetarian, um, I came home from university um, and me and some of my friends from school, we all had a big dinner together. And yeah, every single person around there bought a mixed grill, right? To show me that like, this is ridiculous. And they were all eating it and you know, laughing and going, oh, it's so tasty, I love it so much. And one of my friends like, had it, I mean, I'd never even seen meat stress before this point. My friend ate so much to prove to me that veganism or vegetarianism was stupid. 
that he made himself sick, basically. He was like, he was, <laughs> he was just dripping sweat from all the meat he'd been eating. And like, he couldn't get up and he was just like moaning. You know, that, and that, that's the kind of social response that I got for ages whenever I went home. At university was different, but at home I always got And at Christmas, like, oh, go on, Alec. Oh, it won't hurt you. Have a bit of that. Oh, come on, it's not that. <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Whereas now it's sort of shifting to um, the opposite where, you know, in certain groups of friends that I'm in, when people are eating meat, they, 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 have, they feel like they have, you know, if they order meat when you're at a restaurant, they feel like they have to justify it and say, oh yeah, I know it's bad, but I'm really thinking that I'm probably going to be shifting soon or things like that. And I, yeah, I think those are the reasons why it's kicking off and getting faster as it goes on. Yeah, but why, why it really started, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the social thing that's happened, which then they kicked off in a bigger way recently than it ever has. Do you think maybe it's social media? I mean, when I feel like in the 80s, you needed to print massive photos of like um, your friend did and put them on walls and show people how bad the conditions are. But because everything is so much easier to see and to read and you can connect with other people that are vegan or vegetarian or worried about the implications of eating meat, um, that it's a much faster... um, uh, vegan and vegetarianism is making much faster progress than it was, maybe? I mean, yes, that's probably that's probably true. It's probably got a large part to do with it. And I mean, the internet was where I found out all the information. Mm-hmm. I didn't need, you know, I, I, when once somebody told me that this is what happens on a dairy farm, I just went on YouTube and put in dairy farm exposed, or I can't remember the exact search, but, you know, some kind of dairy farm exposed or male cows being taken away, and suddenly there's 100 videos I can watch that show me that process once you get onto this kind of thing and you start to make the connection between just how bad the animal industry is, you know, it's one of the leading causes of climate change. It's one of the leading causes of the most of the major illnesses we have, like heart disease. Um, yeah. And oh, yeah, and obviously the animals, like the scale of the animals. I mean, a lot of people, once they see that, are driven to take action. And what action could you take before? I mean, what hand out some flies in the street and 10, 20 people will see it. But on social media, you can create... You, you can create a website or um, a page on Facebook that thousands of people will see every day. You know, if, if there's some kind of, if you make viral content, millions of people could see it. And I think the message is much easier to get out. And I think it's one of the things that I think once people see it, it's very hard to ignore. It's not, I don't think this is like a morally ambiguous case where lots of people look at the same evidence and think, hmm, we're all going to come to very different conclusions here. I think that almost everyone that I've met if they see what happens to the animals, they feel it. I don't like this. I want this to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, Something I've been thinking about recently is the, uh, this new technology where people are making these real meat burgers, but they're kind of grown in a vat or something. So they get a few cells from a cow and then they can just make as many burgers as they want. Um, and at the moment, um, it sounds like they're just, they're, they're disgusting and they, and they taste awful. Um, but it seems like it's possible that in, in maybe 10 or 20 years, um, people might be able to just you know, eat, eat burgers that taste exactly like the real, the real thing, but that there's no animal harm involved in it except from the original animal um, you know, that the cells were taken from. And even that's going to be minimal and you know, it, it, it might be, it's going to be quite a, a long time in the past as well. So I guess... Um, you know, I was wondering a bit what you think about that, because obviously we could do that as well with, say, human meat, or we could do it with dog meat or horse meat. Um, but even, you know, that seems to still disgust people. Um, and I guess the question is, is there something that's actually inherently wrong about eating animal meat? Or is it just that, is it just the harm that's associated with it? Um, well, I think there's, there's two ways you can look at that. Um, so I, I know some friends, um, some vegan friends, um, who have a very anti-view of this because they believe that it's buying into the idea that meat is food. And they said that meat isn't food and we shouldn't think of it as food. And so even though no animals are harmed, there's some kind of perhaps a spiritual harm to ourselves or um, it harms the idea that animals have human value because you wouldn't say to do it for you and me, as you said, right? And so they say that it harms the, pro- the process, the progress of um ending hierarchy between human animals to say that um, we can eat analogs of their meat or it, it is actually meat, but it hasn't hurt any animals in the process. Right. Um, the other side is, yeah, it, it reduces it. It reduces suffering. Um, it's probably better like that. 
I personally think that it's a bad thing, not because it's out of those reasons, or because yeah, it doesn't it doesn't hurt the animals. And I don't think it really does buy into this hierarchy. But I did I have worries about uh, giving tech companies control over our food supply, um, and I think it has a lot of space for monopoly. I think it has a lot of space for um, us to become even more distant from our food than we are now. Um, that food has been made in a big factory, a big lab. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's, that's not really an animal I can know of. Yeah. It's not, but it kind of rings of uh, Soylent Green. You know that? <laughs> yeah, it's Soylent Green is people. That type of um, like dystopian horror. So you said um, the philosophy gave you an in, but it wasn't the philosophy that changed your mind. It was the emotional... Um, reaction to seeing these videos and everything. Do you feel like philosophy has a problem in that, that it's not like entirely convincing? Um, yes, 100%. Um, I know, I forgot the name of the person that was doing it now, but I know there's a study being done um, as to whether rational arguments can actually convince someone of something. Um, mm. And it's, it's a competition for philosophers. Um, I don't know, I, 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 the outcome of previous ones was that it doesn't, it doesn't convince people. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the, the task was to create a convincing, purely rational argument with no thought experiment, no description of something happening, just like purely rational and convince someone of an opinion, uh, of a new opinion. And I think it, it doesn't work, right? I think there's very, very few cases in which it does. And the cases when it does work, I think um, we have to d distinguish between knowing something to be true and feeling something to be true. And I think philosophy is very good at, um, allowing you to know something is true. So when, um, yeah, I'll take the Peter Singer argument to keep on the Peter Singer uh, thread. So Peter Singer argues that, um, if, I'll, I'll, I'll give the full example. So you're walking past the pool, uh, there's a child drowning in the pool, but in order to save the child, you're gonna ruin your new shoes and your shoes cost 200 pounds. Should you jump in? Should you save the child, right? Everyone says, yeah, your shoes are not important, the child is important, you need to jump in. Right. But in today's world, you could save a life for three pounds with a mosquito net. I think that's the example that he gives. Um, so when you go to buy a coffin, it's three pounds. Um, you could give that money to charity, right? And so why does it work in that case and not the other case? And I found that convincing. I found that that, yes, I should be giving more money to charity than I am doing. Um, and my three pounds spent on coffee is wasted and I should give it. Because if, if, it, if, it, if three pounds genuinely can save a life, it seems frivolous of me to buy a coffee. Um, <laughs> And so I, 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 I believe I know that to be true, right? If, if there's such a thing as moral knowledge, I believe I know that to be true. But it doesn't convince me of anything. It doesn't make me do anything because I haven't been given, um, I don't feel that it's true. When I buy a coffee, I don't feel anything. When I buy a coffee, I don't, I don't think, wow, I've killed a child or I feel to save in the way that Peter Singer's argument suggests that I should feel that. And I know that I'm not alone in doing that. Um, and I think this is one of the things that um, philosophy, at least moral philosophy, comes up against. Because, I mean, what does it what does it feel like to um, what does it feel like to believe a metaphysical truth? What is it is is there a, is there a feeling of believing um, or like a mathematical truth that two plus two equals four? Is there a feeling that you need to feel that's true? You don't need to change your behaviour if two plus two equals four rather than five. Um, but with moral questions, it seems that there is this almost, there's this gap between what we know and what we're motivated to do. And I think philosophy struggles very much to cross that gap. And like, like with my own story, um, would I have gone vegetarian if I'd just heard Peter Singer? And I hadn't had a close friend who was putting pictures up, who was advocating for that. And if I hadn't had a mum that had been vegan before and all these other things, would I have done it if it was just the argument? Perhaps not, I don't, I don't know, I can't say it. Um, but I know that for a lot of things that I was convinced of intellectually, I wasn't convinced of um, in my behavior and I wasn't convinced of emotionally. Right. Okay. So do you think that there's anything that philosophers can do about that? Because it's quite worrying. I feel like um, a lot of people go into philosophy and they're like, I, well, it, two reasons. One is that they want to solve questions for themselves. It's a very selfish sort of, I'm scared about the universe and I want to go and sort it out in my own head. And then a second reason is um, when they get into it, they want to change things that we do in the world um, because they see the problems, they see the injustice, they see that we're killing loads of animals and that it's really, really bad for the planet. 
Um, but if nobody's getting convinced by the arguments that we're making, what do we do? Um, yeah, so, right. Um, that's a very difficult question, right? Um, I don't really know what the best way to do it is. Um, I think that it's just an inherent lack in philosophy. Um, I mean, so after I finished doing philosophy, um, I was a vegan. I was very, very concerned about the environment. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to start doing as much activism as I can. I'm going to try and put these things into practice. And I joined a place called the Climate 2050 Group or the 2050 Climate Group. And, um, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's a super, uh, they're, they're basically arguing we need to go net zero by 2050, but no systemic change to get there, basically. That was what their point was. Um, and, you know, we had these talks and conferences and that. And I felt, and I, and I asked some in, in philosophical questions, but nobody seemed to care. <laughs> whenever, I, whenever I brought in philosophy into it, it just didn't do anything. Um, if anything, it turned people off what I was saying. Um, and things that would have perhaps gone down well in a philosophy seminar um, went down far worse than, than the emotional appeal or the good rhetoric of someone else who uh, was talking about something. And I started to feel that there was definitely a lack of the ability to use it. And um, I ended up setting up a group with a friend called the um, Free Vegan Cookout which was basically to give out free vegan food um, and talk to people about veganism while they're eating vegan food. Um, and again, I found, because I, I mean, I must have had a thousand of these conversations with people in the street. And giving a purely philosophical argument did almost nothing. Some people were convinced by that. Some people were convinced by that. But it, we built it into the, into, the, into the thing we were doing that it wasn't just about the, an intellectual discussion. Um, it was about the taste of the food. If people didn't like the food, that was it. They didn't do it. They didn't want to talk about it. The food tastes rubbish. And sometimes the food did taste rubbish. I'm not that good at cook. And, <laughs> and, and people, people, people had it and they were like, this is actually, this is rubbish. This is as bad as I thought vegan food was. And I was like, well, no matter what argument I give you, it's, it's gone. Um, yeah, but people being there, being friendly, trying to make jokes with people. Um, yeah, we, we met some people that were doing this. Um, there was a sale, I've forgotten his name now, but he used to work as a salesman and he'd now gone into this kind of vegan work where just trying to talk to strangers about veganism. And he told us lots of techniques that he learned from sales of standing next to people, making sure that you ask them questions. It's all about them. You're not giving them information. Allow them to come to it. And this is almost the, it's strange because this is where I came back to philosophy was meeting these people is that they used to cry questioning. And they believed that Socratic questioning was the best way to do it, and which I thought was kind of funny because the first Socratic questioner was killed for doing Socratic questioning. <laughs> so the idea that this was the best way to convince people of something I thought was a bit funny. But when you, when you, when you matched it with other things, it seemed to work. Um, Can I just hold you there? Time. Sorry, what is Socratic questioning? Uh, basically, you don't have a viewpoint. You just ask people questions and they come to the view on their own. Or right. what Socrates would do is rather than hoping that they come to a particular point, he was hoping to show they didn't understand anything. So <laughs> he'd, he'd ask a judge, or well, there wasn't the judges then, but um, you know, he'd, he'd, ask, he'd ask an important person, what is justice? And they'd say, well, justice is X. Um, and he'd say, well, why is that? And he'd ask a series of questions. And by the end of it, the person doesn't know what justice is anymore. And Socrates <laughs> walks off successful because he's, he disabused this person of the belief that they understand anything about justice. <laughs> um, obviously, this is, this is early Socrates before Plato started talking for uh, using him as a mouthpiece for his own ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, people, that's a big thing in vegan activism of talking to people, convincing people, is Socratic questioning. Um, so rather than saying, um, which is what my belief was, this is sick, this is disgusting, we need to stop this right now, like, um, believe what I'm saying, this is bad. Do you not think it's wrong to, like, kick a dog? Well, then why is it okay to, you know, gas a pig, which is how pigs in the UK are killed, is in a gas chamber, right? Why is it okay to do that? Um, and th but, that, but that didn't have it, that didn't do it. That didn't, give that didn't convince people of anything. But this... Um, giving people a nice environment, giving people good food, a smile, and then asking questions like, do you think it's okay for this to happen? And you don't give them, they, they come to the view themselves and they tell you. And you say, oh, interesting. Well, why, what makes you think that? And just being as friendly as possible and trying to be as understanding as possible of their views if they're different, that's far better than a philosophical method of, you know, sitting in, sitting in an office or sitting reading books 
and then coming to a conclusion and showing people the conclusion and showing you how you got to it. I found that this like dialectic method of chatting to people made, made people far more, um, far more likely to come around. Yeah. That's really cool. Jonah, do you have a question? You look like you have a question. Well, it is really cool, but it's also a bit scary because obviously as philosophers, um, you know, we want, we, we want it to be useful or we want it, you know, we want rationality to be a useful form of doing things. Um, do you know what, what I'm getting at? I feel like you're kind of hedging at, um, have we been going the wrong way? Are we doing the wrong thing? And like, if the Socratic method is much better, then what do we do with our philosophy offices? And um, should we keep writing philosophy? And should we keep trying to rationalize um rationalize our emotions almost um so i think part of it would have to be <clears throat> accepting that we're only partly rational um and that the vast bulk of our person is non-rational um and that's something that philosophy misses really i mean i think that philosophy is very commendable for the clarity and um and the rigor that it, that it puts ideas through um, and I think that's that's what's important about a philosophy in a philosophy classroom is that you can go there with an idea and if you if you not that you want to convince people of it but you want to discover is this true does this hold up to scrutiny philosophy is a brilliant tool for that but if you want to spread it to the world philosophy is not not as, not as useful I don't think and um, I think we spoke about last time we were chatting that um, Jonathan Haidt um, who's an American psycho moral psychologist and he uses analogy um, because he, he loves philosophy, by the way. He thinks philosophy is amazing. He thinks, he thinks philosophy should, is like, um, should be a model for other disciplines because of how much institutionalized disagreement we have and how, <laughs> and how, um, and how willing we are to sort of challenge like accept, accepted beliefs within it. Um, but he, he, he describes the, the moral being as being um, like an elephant and rider and that rationality is the rider and the elephant is the emotions. And that the emotions are, are guiding the show most of the time. And all the rational mind does is justify where we've gone. So to take, let's say that I, the, I mean, and, and people do do this, you know, this is, I mean, we can get real um, narrative examples of this, like that you see something wrong. It's a really common uh, thing in, in books about veganism where people talk about how they became vegan. And um, Tom Reagan calls this um, a, Dam a Damascan moment where you see something and like, um, I, I forgot what the name is before it becomes the same, but anyway. You're on the way to Damascus and you realise, oh, Jesus is Lord. And it just happens like a flash. And suddenly then you've got this thing to justify, like, how did I get here? Right? The thing happens, then you justify it afterwards. And it's the same with a lot of people. You see a pig being killed or you see a, um, a calf being taken away from, from the mother and you think, this is, this is, this is wrong. And then you justify it. Then you, then you come up with reasons, well, how does this fit in with my other beliefs? Right? And so Jonathan Haidt is arguing that most of the time we do morality, it's like that. Most of our moral thinking is like that. But rarely, every now and then, the rational mind can take control of the emotions and can guide it in a new way. And he has this idea, this almost time lag as well, between um, you believe something is wrong, but you're still doing it. Um, and then once you start to move on, eventually after doing the good thing or doing the thing that you now believe is good, you start to feel it as well. And so the elephant now also believes it. And this is the thing about feeling and knowing. He doesn't use the words feeling and knowing. Um, but yeah, so philosophy, I think, has a more limited role, um, although a very important role, but it's, it's, a, it's a very bad thing for spreading ideas. I mean, any, any person who's run a political meeting will tell you um, the most important things are keep it short, make sure everyone gets a smile when they come in the door, make sure everyone feels at home and they're more likely to believe anything you say or they're more likely to come with you um, with this political movement. If, you, if people political theorists and um, you know, PR people, they're not thinking about philosophy. They, it's not something that crosses their mind. Um, the dark arts of PR have nothing to do with philosophy. And um, I think that if you want to be an advocate <laughs> for philosophical ideas, you have to also take that on. Yeah. I think that's... Sorry, I was going to ask if you feel better, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I didn't know what I was trying to say, but I was just... Yeah, getting a bit lost. It it was basically that. Um, I was I was going to say that um, emotional responses as well. You, when we have 
feel a certain way about something. So our kind of emotional values, um, even if our moral values are, aren't necessarily rational, that we usually have that kind of emotional or value-based response um, to facts. So like when you're looking at these pictures on the fridge, that's not just because that response isn't um, kind of clearly rational. It doesn't mean it's irrational. It's just sort of non-rational or it's not even necessarily non-rational because you're looking at a kind of a factual picture of an animal suffering um, and, and your response to that to kind of change your mind about whether you should be eating meat is not necessarily, um, you know, that's not necessarily an irrational response. I, I guess the the problem is when you're, you, you're changing your mind based on lines of reasoning that are positively irrational or maybe fallacious um so you know that they're, they're pretending to be rational but they're not actually rational and i think maybe the the goal in philosophy should not be to move away from emotional persuasiveness it should be to move away from irrational persuasiveness if that makes sense does that does that make sense <laughs> at all? yeah um i'm just trying to think of the feeling and like the the experience of going through a process like that um i mean i i think you're probably right to say that it's not necessarily irrational to see something despicable and then to react to it. Um, but I do think that it, it, you know, like you say, it's not rational. Um, and I mean, I, I'm sure if you, have you ever been um, in, a, in a philosophy seminar or some kind of morals thing and um, something which you um, completely disagree with has been argued for, right? But you can't find a flaw in the reasoning. Yeah, the reasoning sound. It's perfect. You, you mean there's a, maybe there's a flaw somewhere, but um, <clears throat> you can't see it then. So, have you ever believed that, or do you continue not believing it, even though all the rational argument in front of you that you can um, that you can see points in this direction? I get a bit angry. Yeah, I get a bit angry. I sit there and I'm like, I don't like it, but I don't know why. <laughs> But yeah. I think sometimes that um, that process and that situation, I find my, myself in, can provoke me to investigate further, um, and and sometimes that leads me to. I, I think if you, if you're getting barraged enough by that argument, it can sometimes lead you to change your mind, and if and if you're if if you're not shying away from disagreement in that way. And you're, you're actually, you know, you're not scared of that kind of feeling of, oh, I've just seen a perfectly rational argument that I disagree with. If you're not scared of that and you actually look into it, then I think that that can actually be really positive and, and you can change your mind. But um, I mean, what were you going to say? I, I, I feel like that, I, yeah, that doesn't always happen. That's definitely not always the case. I mean, yeah, and I think that that's, that, that's a good part of philosophy is when that kind of thing does happen. Um, but I just think it's a thing that rationally it's, that, it's a very rare case is when that happens most of our beliefs do not come from this kind of process most of our beliefs are feelings that I think we then um, explain later in rational terms um, but you're still using rationality after the fact to justify that disgust feeling and things happening the other way take a lot of time and effort and energy like training myself to look at a piece of meat and see the dead animal um, didn't happen through a rational argument. It came through a practice. It came through, you know, this is what that is. Don't eat it. That kind of thing, you know, and a, and a, and a process of, of avoiding it. So there's the emotional part, and it, there's the emotional um, motivation or compelling people to do stuff. You know, like you show them the baby cows, and they go, "Oh my god, I hate it." So then they want to become a vegetarian. They want to become a vegan. Um, one of the things that philosophy is quite good at is then telling you what to do about how you're feeling about a certain thing so you're like okay so i'm not going to eat meat and i should also do x y and z it's like you can figure out a sort of roadmap for how you should act after you've come to this decision emotionally that this is a bad thing that's happening and i need to do something about it does that make sense yeah i mean it's, it's perfectly possible that you can be um 
you can see so you can see something wrong about the world and you but you haven't made the connections yet and you feel this this is wrong this is bad like um Jeremy Bentham talks about how um, you know he's got that classic quote of this is a complete paraphrase but he says uh, the question is not can they talk or can they um, think but can they suffer um, and I think really the you know the question of whether you're treating something as um, having moral value it, it does come back to that question of sentience a bit um, which is something that's actually very difficult to measure because I think most of the time we just think, well, humans are sentient or I mean, even just I'm sentient, I'm a human. Most other humans act like me, so they're probably sentient. Um, mammals are pretty similar to humans, so they're probably quite similarly sentient. Uh, snakes aren't really like mammals, but they're, they have eyes and they move around, so they're probably sort of semi-sentient. Trees just kind of stand there so they don't really have any sentience, but yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, brings up questions of consciousness and how that is actually in the universe. Um, and, you know, if, if you're just talking about things like, well, it's, you know, it's having sensory receptors and things that gives you consciousness. Um, but that's not necessarily clear. And I think a lot of the time our reasoning on that is just how similar is this thing to me? Therefore, it must be, you know, dissentient. I mean, that's definitely true. And I think that's why, um, yeah, I mean, when I was at Sundays, I really wanted to do my master dissertation on plant intelligence. Um, and I was rejected from all my supervisors for doing that because they all thought it was insane. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there is a place down in Mercia. They have a thing called the Minimal Intelligence Lab. And there's like a group of philosophers and scientists working together in the south of Spain um, who are working on it. But um, yeah, I think, I think we should stop that. I think we should stop saying, well, we have the, like people say about fish, like why do fish feel pain? Well, it's because they have a similar nervous system to us. Why can't we imagine that because animals have evolved in similar scenarios, that they would need similar ways to adapt, right? And rather than, we should look at the behavior rather than the method that it gets the behavior from, you know? So rather than it being, we don't need to be similar. We just need to show that there is behavior that we can best be explained by sentience or best be explained by and some kind of internal experience. Um, and like, yeah, like you said about a tree, it just stands there. It does on our time scale. But if you watch a, a time lapse of a tree over many years, it's moving all the time, right? It's the same with, I've got some uh, broad beans growing in the garden. And like, I, I can't, I don't see it move ever, but they grow, they grow up these like little things like that. But it must be doing this. Like, because it, every day it's in a different place and every day it's moved up, right? And it obviously has some kind, and this is, you've got to, you have to be very careful not to use, to be anthropomorphizing, um, but there's some kind of sense happening. It, it, it has some kind of awareness of where that thing is, where the string is, it's growing up and how to get there, right? Um, and I believe that with a lot of the behavior of plants, if we saw that behavior in animals, we would call that sentience, right? But because it happens like, you know, so there's a really famous example of, um, I, th I think it's an acacia tree, but so um, acacia trees, when they get eaten, they release um, a, cl a cloud of chemicals, right? And that cloud of chemicals gets picked up by other acacia trees. And it's a signal to say um, there's, there's predators in the area that are eating my leaves, right? And so the one that's been eaten will make its leaves taste more bitter. It, it'll push a chemical into its leaves that make the leaves taste more bitter. So that eventually, once it gets so bitter, the animals move on, right? Um, but the cloud um, of chemical is a signal to other plants to start doing that before they've arrived, right? And so other plants in the area will start making a bit of thing before the animals start eating them, right? If we saw that happening through sound rather than chemicals, we would say that's some kind of communication, however rudimentary that communication would be. But because it happens through a chemical, it's, it's not communication. And I think, I, think we, I think we definitely in philosophy get far too hung up on the method of how these things are happening rather than just look at what's happening and then, okay, it's using a different means to do this. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it's not happening or that there's nothing, you know, that it's just, it's just some kind of, it's like, it's just like a computer sort of thing, you know? I, um, I was listening to some ambient music recently whilst I was working <laughs> and ambient music always has really, um, kind of sensual com comment sections and like really, they're always like really intellectual or like, I don't know, everyone's just sitting around like very, um, very zen, but I screenshotted this comment and it's kind of, um, 
but someone's basically just said plants are basically our ancient cousins who found a simpler and more peaceful way to live um and i think that just kind of really relates to what you're saying like you know just because they're unlike humans um we kind of assume that you know that there there's something completely unintelligent but but i mean when you see when you see time lapses of plants i mean over over just a day they're they're moving like animals in many many ways a lot of the time i just think that's really interesting but yeah we've we've already converted ariana to veganism so she might just be eating rocks and water but (laughs) but (laughs) just grinding them up No, I don't know. I don't know if, animal, if plants have more value in the way that animals do. I think animals is for me. Animals is such a clear case. Um, whether plants have feelings or whether they have the moral value, which means you can't eat them. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't want really to comment on that. I eat plants. There's a <laughs> really funny scene in um, Notting Hill. You know, the one with Hugh Grant and um, Julia Roberts, and he's going on like dates with. His, his friends keep setting him up and um, this one girl is a, is a fruitarian and she only eats fruits and vegetables that have already died and dropped to the ground. And like, that's the only thing that she eats, um, which is essentially what anybody that was really taken by what you've just said about plants, um, Harley would, would be saying. <laughs> but um, what I find interesting is that I feel like as humans, we're much more, it's a it's a common thing that we struggle with. We struggle with things that don't look like us. But what I also find interesting is that we're more open to ideas of like aliens and robots. And we're more interested in whether they might have feelings and how we should treat them. Things that we haven't met, that we haven't seen, that are maybe thousands of years in the future for us. And yet we don't think about animals and we don't think about plants. And they're here and they're happening right now. Uh, yeah, weird. And, and um, they always look like humans. Yeah, always look like humans. I mean, like the Terminator. Or, or, you know, Even you see it at those robotic labs, like building human-like things. Like, is that, the most, is that the most effective way of building it? Or, I mean, I don't know. There's, I suppose there's the, dog, the Amazon dog in there. Yeah. The packages. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, um, I'm very, very loosely, I have a very loose understanding of this, so forgive me, anyone that knows about this that thinks that this is uh, completely ludicrous. But um, there's a, a philosopher, Derek Jensen, um, he's like an American, but he's not, he's not, he's not an analytic philosopher. Um, I think his philosopher understood far more broadly and loosely. I mean, probably, I think he's, he's probably just a writer um, who occasionally uses things that might be seen as philosophy. But um, he talks a lot about indigenous cultures. And he thinks that there's no hierarchy at all between um, uh, plants and animals. There's none, right? But he thinks that you can eat plants and he thinks that you can eat animals, right? Provided that you're in a relationship with those plants and animals. So um, it's okay to take salmon from a river because he he lives in the northwest of America. So there's like a salmon in the river nearby. It's okay to eat that salmon if you're willing to die to protect that salmon. Right. If you're willing to protect that salmon run from the dam that was built there or um, you're okay to chop down a tree and use the wood, even if the tree is equal value to you, because as long as you're willing to protect the forest from something and play a part in maintaining that forest for the future, um, which I think I think is quite interesting. I mean, I don't think it really applies. I don't think it really applies to like veganism in the West, like or living in a city where uh, there's no possible chance of having a relationship with any of the animals, you know, Um, but, but I think that's the way that other people, other groups in history have um, sort of got around this, having a non-hierarchical way of saying that, yes, you can eat them, but it comes with um, sort of things that you have to do in exchange. You can't just, you don't just, you're not just able to take it, you have to give back. It's kind of, um, if you've, have you seen Captain Fantastic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very... Um... I've seen it in other films. I feel like I, I, I have this image of a cartoon where they they kill an animal and they say thank you. Um, but maybe that's Captain Fantastic. I think it's Captain Fantastic. But the idea that you have a moral duty to the things that you survive off of is much more symbiotic in that way. Um, it's also not self-deprecating, but it's um, uh, putting yourself in a level playing field with everything around you just because I wear um, jeans and I like wearing 
lipstick doesn't mean that like I'm better than a dolphin or better than a my dog for example uh, I keep trying to make that argument to my dad and he really isn't buying it um <laughs> yeah I think there's this idea that we well there is we're just better just better because we've done all these things that's definitely also you're gonna speak I was just gonna say going back to what you were saying about um aliens as well I mean if, if we have the outlook that we're just better because we're more advanced. Um, an interesting thought, ex thought experiment is the idea that if we invented an AI that was a thousand times more intelligent than we were, or if, if aliens landed on Earth and were a thousand more times more intelligent than we were, then we wouldn't really have any uh, rational justification for why they shouldn't treat us in the same way that we treat uh, animals that we've d domesticated or, or that we farm. Um, you know, we've been we, we pretty screwed for that. <laughs> Sorry, I, I interrupted you as well. No, no, it's fine, it's fine. Um, yeah, I think that's, super, that's a super interesting thought experiment, yeah. I think any kind of one where you say that, oh, because we've built this and because we've built that, um, we're, so we're, we're okay to do this and dolphins don't have value. Um, we're the ones that are judging it. We're the ones that are making the metric to say what, what makes us superior. And obviously we're going to choose the things that we can do that animals can't rather than choosing things that animals can do that we can't like a dolphin can swim faster than me why is that not the the metric by which you know superiority is measured and i think it's funny because people say oh you know animals can't write a symphony i can't write a symphony i've never written one i don't know anybody that's written a symphony it's like i've never met i don't think i've ever met a person who's written a symphony all these amazing achievements that they say it's like i've not done them so i'm not so surely i've not why do i get those about because i'm a human i I'm somehow, um, I get to keep the superiority because I'm closer related to Beethoven than I am to a dog, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it, like it's the idea where you could, um, if you really wanted to, you could learn how to write a symphony. I mean, at the end of the day, bollocks to it because whales write what you could call symphonies if you wanted to all the time they just don't write them down they just sing they're in the choirs all the time they communicate they they maybe they think that we can't do it and that we're really stupid and that we should stop putting those microphones in the ocean because it's really putting them off they're singing you know <laughs> have you um have you seen the video of the um the guy playing the, I don't know, it's like, I can't remember whether it's a, a clarinet or a saxophone, but he's playing it through like a speaker in this sea and he's playing it to a, a whale and the whales are responding. Really? Yeah, they're like, oh, they're playing a duet together. That's so cool. I feel like there's a lot of animals that probably think we're idiots. Like, have you seen that study where dogs tend to think that we're great and that um, they're like, oh, you're just such a non-fluffy no, they, they think that they're fluffy humans and cats are like, these are bald, ridiculous cats and I'm going to have to look after it. And it's such a pain in the arse. <laughs> I, I can't remember whether I saw, where I saw it, but like there was a study that they did about how um, cats and dogs relate to humans instead of how humans relate to cats and dogs. Um, I just found it really funny. <laughs> But yes, okay, so you kind of, I feel like your track through philosophy, you've gone um, really like economics, oh, I really like philosophy, oh, philosophy's not really doing what I need it to do, so I'm going to become an activist, um, and now I'm going to use the Socratic method, and uh, you've come full circle around back into why philosophy um, is useful to you. So, is that fair? Um almost but it was it was it was a socratic method that was changed so much that it wouldn't be philosophy because the aim wasn't to find something out if you know what i mean mm -hmm. like you weren't you weren't doing the philosophy with the person um but yeah and I, I, I don't know i think now i just see i used to see philosophy like the master discipline um i think michael gal kroger calls it in his new book the theories of philosophy that um the philosophy as the ultimate arbiter that's how i thought philosophy it was the ultimate arbiter of truth Mm -hmm. uh, but I've just, I've just, I've lost that feeling for it now, and I think it has its place. It's super important. It's very interesting, and I'll, I'll love it forever. But mm -hmm. um, it, it, we shouldn't try and take it too far. Um, and I know we spoke previously um, that 
think literature can deal with moral questions in sometimes in ways that are far more insightful and um, far more useful than philosophy can. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's about just keep leaving it where it, using it in the situation where it's most useful and not allowing it to um, get too big headed and think that um, it can do all these other things. Yeah, cool. I'm not saying most philosophers are doing. A lot of philosophers are very very humble about. Um, the limitations of philosophy. I'm not saying the philosophers are doing that. <laughs> 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 this might um, go against what you, you said a bit, but I, I don't necessarily think it does. I um, I think actually thinking about philosophy as something that is limited and, and realising that sometimes there are more efficient ways to change minds or to live, um, I think that that is actually quite a philosophical way to live because you know, philosophy should be about like how, what works. That's what it should be about. And it should be about what um, is the best way to live. Um, and if we're saying philosophy doesn't always work and it's not always the best way to do life, that is almost kind of a philosophical way to, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I, I think I'm maybe a bit, a bit biased, but I do feel like philosophy is kind of, always inherent in in parts of life that you don't necessarily think it is i mean what you're saying about literature oft, often literature is is really convincing and even if it's not uh, plainly rational it's still kind of got a, a deeply philosophical um kind of fundamentally it's kind of it's very deeply philosophical um yeah i think that's yeah <laughs> I think I was being um, a bit too uh, vague. Anal analytic philosophy. That's what I'm talking about, basically. The philosophy that I learned at university, um, which was never about how to live. You know, it was moral questions were there, but it was purely an intellectual pursuit. It wasn't, um, you know, it was just, it was fun puzzles and problems to solve and interesting and even important problems and puzzles to solve. But it didn't, uh, I think it would be a broader understanding of philosophy than what I was giving to say that. But I agree with what you're saying, yeah that a lot of literature is heavily influenced by philosophy and a lot of other disciplines um, are heavily influenced by philosophy as well. Um. So I feel, so I've become a vegan, um, I've decided right now. Um, Jonah had an existential crisis about philosophy and has now solved it. Um, <laughs> and Harley has managed to do all of this in an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you very much. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Yeah, is there anything that you would like to close out um, the show um, with? That sounded so cheesy. I'm never doing that again. Yeah, I've got an idea, really. Um, yeah, I don't know. If you, if you think veganism is something that you're interested in or you care about animals, or you care about the environment, have a look into it um, and just do some, do some research on it. And, but don't just look at the ethical arguments and don't just look at horrible footage and don't just look at environmental things. Look at all of them and see the whole picture and see how it fits together. And then decide for yourself what you think you should do. Cool. Okay. Thank you so much, Harley. This has been a wild ride. All right, brilliant. Thanks, thanks okay. for having me on. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, I'm going to stop the recording now. If you like this episode, share it with your friends. If you hated it, share it with your enemies. Uh, <laughs> tune in next week. We're going to be talking to Patrick Kalinescu about how philosophies helped him through living his life with quite a severe physical disability and, and his story is really worth listening to. Uh, you can find more of our content on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. No idea about the TikTok. A huge thank you to Jonah for his incredibly intelligent questions and his patience. I've been Ariana and you've been gorgeous. <laughs>